You know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are extremely excited to have Professor Tim Smeeding, the Lee Rainwater Distinguished Professor of Public Affairs and Economics. Professor Smeeding served as the Director for the Institute of Research on Poverty from 2008 to 2014, and we are extremely excited today to talk to him about how the federal government is tackling poverty, especially among children, during the COVID-19 pandemic. There's so much to talk about, so let's dive right in. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor Smeeting. Thanks for having me and for having such a fancy address, 1050 Basket. <laughs> well, we, we, try, we try our best. Since this is the first time we've had you on this podcast, we'd like to start with just a little bit about you and your background, and especially your teaching and research interests. Well, that's a nice question. Thanks, Sam. Well, I grew up, I was the oldest of a oldest child of a union carpenter, oldest of six. And I paid for my way through school and stuff. And I didn't know what to do with myself after I got an economics degree. And my aunt, who was a school superintendent, convinced me I might be a good teacher. And I thought, oh, if you teach, you get summers off. So maybe I'll try that. So I started at University of Connecticut. And then in 1971, I came here to the University of Wisconsin-Madison as a 71. I was born in 48, 71. I was 20. I got 22. Anyway, I came here and I began working on a PhD in economics and I was a research assistant at the Institute for Research and Poverty. And I was a Ford Foundation fellow and whatever else. But uh, when I was there, I developed an interest in poverty and inequality and then disadvantaged populations. I wrote my thesis on that topic. I went off to a number of different schools I earned my spurs as an economist, got a PhD in economics, and then suddenly realized that economics was more interested in methodology, and I was interested in the answers to questions applied microeconomics. So I broadened myself out. Uh, most people think that I am a sociologist now, uh, but I'm an economist. The only major academic journal I've never, leading academic journal I never published in is the American Political Science Review. I published in three or four other political science journals in sociology, economics, demography, aging, all that stuff. But so uh, then I began thinking of things in terms of what are social problems and how can we handle them. The economists didn't have the answer. I looked to others to develop the answers. I went through various places, got to be an extinguished professor in a couple of places. And in 2008, somebody called me and said, you want to come back to Madison? and be the director of the Institute for Research on Poverty. And I said, wow, that would be pretty cool. So I did. I joined the Fowl School. What's most interesting to you guys, I think, is we made inroads on doing coursework with undergrads. We invented a program, a certificate program. And the chairman said, I need somebody who can be engaging and who can bring in lots of students and interest them in public policy. And I said, I'm your guy. So I designed and have taught four times now, I think, uh, contemporary public policy issues 
which is the lead-in course to the certificate. And we cover lots of topics in there, including poverty and inequality, but environment, gun control, whatever happens to be the issues of the day. And I try and give students insights on how to look at them. But since my main area was poverty and inequality, I started thinking about what we could do differently in this country than we had done before. Now, luckily, I spent 20 years inventing and then publicizing something called the Luxembourg Income Study, for which I've gotten many awards. I was a founding director. And there you look across nations and see how nations solve the problem of child poverty. I've written several books in this, articles and everything too. And they had something called a child allowance. And I thought, well, you know, that's great. I don't think we'll see anything like that here. But then as we went along, we developed a refundable, a re, first of all, a child tax credit in this country. In the late 90s, we made it refundable during Obama. Uh, we doubled it to 2,000 a child where it is now. Now, at the same time, I joined the National Academy of Sciences panel on how to have child poverty in uh, 10 years. And one of the things we looked carefully at was the child allowance or a refundable child tax credit paid monthly. Um, you can call it different names. It's the child benefit in Australia, the child benefit in Canada. And it made a lot of sense. And so we looked at it with 20 other alternatives. We checked everything out. We recommended packages, look at three packages. And at the end, you know, it was one of the alternatives. And very interestingly, it, we knew there was some interest on the Hill. We had talked to numbers of Democrats and and others. Uh, we knew there was some Republican interest because uh, a couple of senators um, who have Warren backgrounds uh, believed in large families and supporting large families and could see the flexibility. I got on a National Academy of Social Insurance study group with Sam Hammond from the Niskanen Center. He listened to everything I said and he wrote it up and now it's Romney's plan. Not all of it. Uh, and then there's Biden uh, signed on with the Democrats in the AFA plan, the American Family Act plan. And here we are, we've got two plans and the question is which one of them is going to become law and how are they going to work? And so I couldn't be happier. We went a long way towards something I really believe in. I've written articles, blogs, interviews, podcasts, network TV shows. I've done lots of stuff on this topic. And the more I've looked at it, the more I've thought about it, and the more I've talked to other people, I am convinced, and so are others, it's the right thing to do. Before we get to more questions on your research in public policy, a lot of students also want to continue in your tradition of finding answers to um, some of these big problems that we're facing with inequality, especially with income and poverty. Before we get into the, those other questions on your research, do you have any advice for the student listeners who are, you know, looking as they're trying to, as they're developing their career and their academic career, advice on some of the pursuits that they should follow in order yeah, to sure. get First thing, keep your options open. What um, research is all about is, you know, there are questions that need answers and you develop tools to help you do the answers, right? And you get rudimentary tools as an undergraduate. Even in my class, you'll learn a little bit about something called policy analysis. Then if that's really what you're interested in, you might think about getting a master's in public affairs or public policy from somewhere. Uh, our accelerated program costs you just an extra year. Other places have one and two year programs after. And you develop a way of thinking of, of saying, you know, what's the real problem? How big is it? How long will it last? And so forth. 
should we do something about it? And if we should, um, what are our goals for policy? Then you sit down and say, what are our options? And we might be doing something now that may not be so good. And you compare and contrast the evidence for both and you come to a conclusion. That's the rubric. That's the way policy schools work. That's the way that the questions and answers work. So uh, a master's degree like that gives you lots of options to go to work for a while, to also pursue a law degree, to pursue an MPH or something like that. Then comes the important critical juncture. Do you want to get a PhD? And if the answer is yes, then you better know exactly what it is you want to study because you're putting yourself, you're going into a research career. And in that research career, you're going to have to learn to specialize in something. It could be political economy. Uh, it could be, uh, you could go into economics where you get lots of tools and tools are more important. It could be a good school of public affairs and public policy where you get a balanced approach and you get tools, but also more expertise on the answer to questions and so forth. Um, but that's the big choice. So you start wide and you narrow down. And your experiences as an undergrad, your experiences in grad school, your experiences outside the classroom help you, and people like me, help you decide what it is you really want to do. Uh, impress your professors. Get to know them. Make sure when you ask them, can you give me a good recommendation, not just can you give me a recommendation. Nobody gets anything from me unless you've got at least an AB in my course and I've met and talked with you, and I've got your resume so I can understand where you've been and what you're thinking about. And then you might ask me, well, what do you think about doing this or that? And then I'll tell you, you have to answer that question, but here's how I think about it. And once you've done all those things, okay, then I know a few million people in the world and I can maybe help you, okay? And that's the way it works with you. And when you get to be old like me and you've been around a lot and you're doing work in lots of different fields and areas, uh, you get to know a lot of people. And so I have, you know, sometimes I can make good matches, sometimes I can't. But the important thing is, can you give me a good letter? And say those words, good letter. Because some people will say yes, and then they'll write a recommendation that couldn't get you a job as a dog catcher. It's amazing. Uh, and some professors sit there and say, I agreed to write this letter. Now I have to say really good things about this person. <laughs> and they write letters that, that, you know, are just... There's no, they're there. There's nothing in the letter. You don't want that. You want people who are in your corner, people who have been impressed with you one way or the other, the work you've done, the internships you've done, your work out of the, out of the office, your work in the classroom, especially, and so forth. So make sure you cultivate that. Uh, doing stuff like this is very good too. You get, I'm sure you've asked the same questions that you're asking me, the 58 other professors. So, you know, you just get, everyone is a little bit different, but you get my point of view and and that's it. Now, as promised, we want to start getting into your research and teaching interests, which do include, of course, inequality, unemployment, and poverty. And these issues have always been around us, but they've exploded in the last year around two crises that have kind of come together on this issue, both, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic and the rise of what some are labeling a new or resurgence of the civil rights movement. And both of these historical events have made issues of poverty and unemployment and inequality incredibly salient and even urgent. So let's say that this is maybe the first day of an undergraduate course on poverty and inequality in the United States. With this context, how would you introduce these topics of poverty and economic inequality? 
They set up by saying, what is poverty? What does it mean? How do you define it? And there are, I have a wonderful lecture on that with 52 different graphs of quantitative and qualitative subjective mixed methods, uh, wealth poverty, income poverty, material deprivation, and so forth and so on. And you talk about the way things are defined. And then you try and describe the problem pretty well. That's what you should first do. Uh, then you might particularly be interested in its racial or and ethnic uh, dimensions, which which there certainly are some, and how those are addressed in the literature. Uh, then you might start saying, okay, well, what are we going to do about this problem? And you can start looking at, at various uh, options. Now, the options depend on the exact question. And I try and say, teach people that poverty and inequality can be different things. Right, maybe you're interested in mobility, uh, upward mobility or downward mobility. Um, maybe you're interested, you know, get your feet grounded and then you can look at the COVID recession and what it has done. And obviously civil rights are rising and there are a lot of issues there that you want to unpack. And the second lecture always though is on values. You really need to know what people's values are. What's success? For a lot of people, success was getting poor people off of welfare. A lot of other people's success was getting them off of welfare and getting them into middle class. Those are very different objectives and people write different things, okay? So what are your values? What guides you? How much choice do people have? How much is about circumstance versus individual initiative and so forth and so on? And, and I push students to look at value and value conflicts because they're always there. And once you've got those backgrounds, you say, okay, Maybe we need some tools to answer these questions, so a little bit on policy analysis. Then you delve in, into topics that might be important. What are the demographics of poverty? Um, what are the ways that we fight poverty today? If it's poverty, it's about poverty, right? You do the same thing about inequality and then mobility and so forth. And, that, and by the time you start looking at options and comparing them, and talking about how important healthcare and education are in addition to income support, I mean, two-thirds two of what governments spend, spend money on are healthcare and education. And so you have to understand how they're part of the, of the system too. Then you can look at specific issues and proposals and try and evaluate them. And you can, you know, it, it could, that could easily take a semester. Um, but along the way, you're asked to start writing things, write an op-ed about a, a topic, uh, write a testimony write a short policy analysis. Uh, we identify the problem, the policy, the goals for policy, the options, and how you might weigh them. At the end of that, you've got some broader appreciation and then, well, I want to know more about, and then you go there. I mean, there's all, you know, there are a lot of related courses in crime and justice, in prisons, and guns, and so immigration and so forth. And that's not, and then, you know, that's for a specialized course for a much larger course, you guys aren't so interested in poverty and inequality. A little bit interested in race, but what you guys every year are interested in are the environment, guns, immigration, policing. Those are the main policing now, but also crime and justice. Those are the things you know that students like. So I cover those. And I, we try and stay up to date. My reading list for my course is never done until about two weeks before the end of the semester. Why? Because issues change. Um, Look at this last semester. We had an election. And so suddenly, at, before the election, there's where did X stand, where do Y stand? 
And then after the elections, okay, what did so-and-so say about this and that? And my take-home final exam had three questions, all of which were taken from the newspapers over that past week. Okay, and that's what I wanted to use the tools I gave you to try and answer these specific questions. So I take the word contemporary to mean contemporary. That means that I don't dust off old notes. I don't teach you what I taught last semester. I teach you what's going on now. I encourage students to pick topics. I encourage students, if they find something interesting that they think is germane to the case, to send it to me and maybe I'll put it on a reading list and so forth. And I really love teaching face-to-face -face much more than in front of a computer. So that's been a little rough, rough on you guys, I know. And not easy on me either, but hopefully that will be done soon. By the way, I got my second vaccine on Tuesday. Old guy, you get in line early. <laughs> Um, especially like thinking about what you just said about always keeping it current and contemporary. How have you seen the topics and values, especially shift over like your teaching career? That's interesting. Um, a lot of the values have stayed the same, but I've come to be more critical of the economist perspective, which is that, oh, your choices, you just need to make the right choices, but you have good information on the choices. I've come to realize that you know, how we run programs is as important as how we design them. I kind of realize a lot of things along the way that give me a much more grounded perspective. And there is no good textbook for my class. So next year on sabbatical, I'm going to actually write one. It is my way of looking at things. And you guys seem to like it. I seem to get pretty good ratings and students are pretty interested. So I'm, I'm pleased with uh, what's going on there. And before I retire in a couple more years, then I'd really like to you know, share my methods with other people. There's some hope now that there's some light at the end of the tunnel and at least we have better leadership. And if this child allowance, child tax benefit goes, I'm going to be a very, very happy man. Sure. I don't need to write another article. I've written 300 of those. I don't need another book. <laughs> I, I need to see that a good idea sees the light of day and gets put out there and run correctly. I, it's just, can you imagine... Can you imagine um, in this world where we doubt what government can do if by July, um, at least half, if not most of the kids in the country, uh, parents are getting a debit deposited into their bank account every month and it's not gonna stop until parenthood changes or until the child becomes 18 every month regularly. I couldn't, I, even the Trump people were kind of interested in that and the idea that you can actually show you're doing something for America. Joe Machen's, you know, people, uh, you know, poor whites in Appalachia, poor blacks in the deep south and in Gary, Indiana, and Milwaukee, kids on Indian reservations, uh, immigrants. 20% uh, of the poor kids in America are actually citizen children born in the United States whose parents are immigrants and who are afraid to apply for programs for, for which their kids are entitled. Uh, all those kids that have social security numbers, all those parents are going to be entitled to this child allowance. All of them should be getting it too. So I, the politic, you're a political scientist, you got to say, duh. You know, this is like the Works Progress Administration all over again. This is Biden. Do you want to, if you're in the Senate and the House, do you want to join them or do you want to say, no, nah, I didn't want to do that? It's a no brainer. I think. Well, I, well, like while we're, while we're talking about it, um, 
can you do you want to talk a little bit about the differences between the Romney and the Biden plan for the well let's first of all let's talk we have a child tax credit now yeah. it's two thousand dollars a child and it goes to everyone whose income is between about forty thousand dollars and four hundred thousand dollars that's two-thirds of the kids in the country there's only about two percent of kids who don't get it because they're too rich but then the ones in the bottom either get part of it or none of it because um, they haven't worked enough. And they're the ones who need it the most. Now, in every other country, you think of, well, what do we provide for people? Well, if you want to invest in kids, um, we were the world leader at one time in K-12 education. We still do a good job. But every kid, immigrant kid, every kid in America is entitled to that. No questions asked, you can go to school. In every other nation but ours, no questions asked, you get health insurance and health care coverage. That's universal too. But how about some support for reducing the cost of having kids to give you some options so you can get some enrichment, so you can have a steady flow of income? Um, we don't do that yet. 17 other countries do do it. Canada gets $400 um, a kid a month. So um, what happened is this child tax credit that's paid once a year is all hidden. It's mixed in with other tax refunds and everything. And some don't get it. So what we said on the National Academy Committee was suppose we this $2,000 went to everybody and we just extended it down and without question, anybody who had a child with Social Security got this benefit. And if you didn't owe taxes that you got it as a tax rebate or a tax refund, okay? And it's not because it's after tax and because that means everybody gets $2,000 to support their kids, either off of their taxes or, or directly, it doesn't count against any other programs. It doesn't fade out to your, your income gets to be really high. So you don't worry about earning more and losing more, more benefits from it. It stabilizes your income because it'll be there every month for you in your account until unless parenthood changes or the child becomes 18. Um, it doesn't care if you're black, brown, yellow, uh, Native American, uh, where you are and who you are, you're entitled to this. There's no requalification. There's no re this and re that. You don't have to re-up yourself. It's a really simple, straightforward, clean, solid thing. And every month you'll have $250 or $300 per child deposited into your account, which you can use um, to buy better housing, to fix your car, to do anything related to your, your family and improving the life of your family. And so we did it, we tested it out. In order to do just that, it would be $32 billion because everyone else is getting 2000. Okay. If you jump right now to everyone getting 3000 or, or more, then it's expensive. The reason it's expensive is because the 65% for getting the smaller one need the bigger one and then you extend down. Um, and it's 110 billion bucks. Uh, which seems like a lot of money for quote, a welfare program, but it is the welfare program. And in terms of tax taxes and tax bills, it's really not very big at all. Okay. So um, Biden, neither Biden nor Trump mentioned it very much. Child poverty wasn't a big campaign issue. Children don't vote. Um, you don't see a lot of signs, you know, young people matter um, out there on the road, but. When they got done, they got along the way. Um, some of us were able to talk to a number of his advisors and they said, hey, this looks pretty good. 
And you talk to the Democratic leadership in the House and the Senate, they said, hey, this looks really good. And so they have a plan. At the same time, uh, conservatives seem to like it. There's a whole bunch of conservatives from Ramesh Panuru and lots of others who have written and said that this seems like a clean, interesting, right thing to do. We had a National Academy of Social Insurance Committee, which won't report its results until March 2nd after the close to when the barn doors closed. But I made the case and they came out strongly on it. And a young guy was on the committee with there. His name was Sam Hammond. He wrote down everything I said. And boom, it's Ronnie's plan. There are a lot of Ronnie's plan. And so we have two plans now. There's good, some good aspects to both and others. And somehow we'll end up with one or the other. And as long as we can figure out how to deliver it by July, we're going to be in great shape. And it won't go away. So what do the plans look like? Both of them would give kids between the ages of six and 17, 3,000 a year or 250 a month. Uh, Nancy Pelosi argued with me early on before the House bill even came out that I want more for young kids are more expensive. Okay, the literature says that. The literature said you can have a bigger effect than young kids too. So she put, they put $50 a month in. Romney said, I'm putting 100 a month in. So it's 300 a month for kids under six for Biden and the Democratic plan, and it's 350 or 4,200 a year for uh, Senator Romney's plan. The Biden plan says it's for one year, but no one believes that. And no, I mean, why set up this structure? Uh, the only problem with his plan is he has to figure out how to pay for it. And a tax bill sometime next year is how he'll pay for it after the pandemic, okay? Uh, Romney, on the other hand, says we're gonna pay for it now, and he takes money off of some existing programs to cover it. He's got a five-year time frame. I think a few of the things he wants to cut are okay, but he wants to cut childcare and he wants to cut the earned income tax credit, which made no sense to me because those are programs that help more people work. We, this isn't gonna be the end all. Um, this, this is gonna give you a floor and something, but it'll give you, you want the ability to go out there and work in the market and have your kids well taken care of and so forth. So cutting childcare and especially cutting the earned income credit makes no sense to me. And uh, the committees are working on this now. The House committees already marked their bill up and it looks just like the American Family Act has before. Then it'll go to the Senate. You may end up a little bit higher minimum wage as part of the deal. There'll be a lot of debate about other parts, but it seems to me that um, the Democrats have some leverage now since they won those two seats in Georgia. Uh, and since they can do this as reconciliation. Uh, but I hope they do listen to the Republicans, I think the Social Security Administration is a much better place to run the program than the Internal Revenue Service. They both have to be involved. Uh, but um, you, we know how much problem we have right now getting the EIPs, the uh, emergency income payments, out to poor people. In our own state, there's six or 700,000 who never even got their first benefit yet because they moved or because they weren't connected with the UI system or because the IRS couldn't find them or whatever. So um, I would like to, I would hope some of that will be, will be in there. Um, but I'm confident by the middle of next month, uh, we'll have something. If I could ask, could you, I guess, elaborate a little bit or explain your confidence that something will pass? Because if we know that Congress is one thing, it's, we know that it's usually slow or oftentimes yeah. ineffective. So could you face the deadline of, for people who lose, will lose the temporary unemployment and other things. So what's driving it and what's pushing it very nicely 
is uh, the COVID relief bill, okay? Well, there's a lot of stuff in there that may not need to be there. Some of these EIPs may not, emergency income payments may not to be so big and everything, you can argue about all that. But this seems to be really a key part of the Democrats' plan, and they want to have it. And I think uh, Biden's going to, it's his first 100 days. He's got the leverage to have something happen. There may be some other changes. You might have to convince some people to jump on board, like Joe Manchin or whatever. But uh, his kids, he's got a lot of poverty in Appalachia. And this would do an amazingly great deed for his kids growing up in rural West Virginia, uh, for instance. And you can go around to the rest of the states. And once it's clear that we're going to do something, then the idea is, okay, let's get on the, on the bandwagon, I think. So that's why I think we'll have something by March 15th. At the worst, every Democrat I know, including the main advisors and main people in the House Ways and Means Committee and uh, the main advisor, tax advisor to Nancy Pelosi and so forth, there has to be a tax bill soon. Why? Because a lot of Republican, a lot of the uh, tax preference items that are tailored for individual big donors, uh, including oil and gas uh, and um, other coal um, subsidies, things like that, will, will expire. So there has to be a tax bill. And when there's a tax bill, this is right at the top of the Democrats' priority. It's co-sponsored by virtually everybody. Tammy's on board. Um, of course, Ron Johnson isn't, but Tammy's on board and a million other people are on board. And so I see this as having a very strong chance of having something happen. Now, you never know. But um, I think this is key. And I think that if the Democrats say, there's going to be something like this in here, and it's our priority, and we're going to do it, then something has to happen. Then the Republicans have to figure out how to say no, or how to tweak it in hopefully in useful ways. So that's why I'm confident, more confident than I have been. Would you say that like right now is a is like a unique moment of opportunity to pass something like this? Um, of course, because we, I mean, there were good plans or problems before, but now the uncertainty and the inequality associated with the pandemic. I mean, already kids are starving, there's lines and whatever. Biden, boom, by rule, increased SNAP benefits by 15%. 21% increase in enrollment of over 700,000 people getting SNAP in the state of Wisconsin right now, okay? And he did that by fiat, paying extra money because kids aren't getting school lunches and breakfast if they're not in school. So that he could do. Uh, but then there's bigger problems. There's uncertainty. There's stress. There's pressure on families. How am I going to pay the rent? When, can I get employed? I'm worried about COVID and so forth. And relieving that stress, giving people some options, giving them letting them know that something will be coming in every month. And if you have to use it to pay the rent, for instance, that's fine. A quarter of the foreclosures for, um, not foreclosures, the evictions in this country are for less than $500 a month in rent that's owed. If you've got two kids under any one of these plans, bam, you can at least pay the rent. And, you know, rent eats first is one of Matt Desmond's, a former student of mine, one of his famous lines, because you, you, you if you've got SNAP and you're getting this, you don't have to choose between eating and, and living, but um, it does give you some more degrees of, of, of help. And it'll really help the working poor especially. So last week, the New York Times had an article about Erica Hunt. She's a mother of four in Milwaukee, and 
She makes $2,000 a month roughly, and she's $300 a month short in meeting her budget. So she's driving around without a driver's license. She's going to owe student loan debt at some point and so forth. So this column says increasing the minimum wage to $15 would give her a $3 an hour raise, and she'd have 400 bucks more. And I say, passing the child allowance. She's got two kids, six to 17, two kids under six. That's going to be at least $1,000 more every month, regularly. Okay? And no one's going to worry about her losing her hours or getting her some um, job cutbacks if you force the minimum wage to $15 right away. She's making 12 right now. So the problem's there, but she had the wrong solution. The solution for her is a child allowance so she can do more for her kids, so she can... You know, she can make sure that they might have tutoring. They might have enrichment programs after school. They can go to summer camp. They can pay for lessons. They can be like other kids, more social inclusion. And um, so I've got the answer. It'll be in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, I think, this weekend. Anyway, they're going to, my answer to his problem. So that's where we are. And I'm, I'm hopeful. Um, you can tell me I'm wrong in a month or so. But I think there's a talk. The clock ticking. I think that we're done with the impeachment stuff and it's time to legislate and the Democrats are ready to go. Republicans are thinking about how they might affect these options slightly and uh, they may have some good ideas, but um, I think we're going to have this show on the road pretty soon. And that's huge. That's the biggest thing to happen since, I don't know when, uh, since, since civil rights, since whatever for poor kids. It's the biggest one solid action. It would reduce poverty by half, more than half in black black families. It would be give them an honest cushion every month, a regular source of income, would reduce a lot of income stress. And the other night, if you were listening on Monday night on the Mike uh, Kinnetter show, Mike said, I think this is great. And he asked me, what else could you do? And I said, I don't think there's a good second choice. I never did. But not everybody in the committee would agree. And we didn't make a specific recommendation for this policy, but it was one of them we laid out there. And it's the one that everyone's clamming onto now and everyone's asking us about. So I think it's the right thing to do. I think it's the right time to do it. People need this regularly. The calamity of being laid off and losing your job and not being able to support your family can happen to anybody. Uh, the unemployment system is rickety as hell. And we can't just rely on that, although it, it will help if you qualify. Uh, so we need to do this. So I, yeah, I think all the stars are somehow aligned. We've been talking about this policy within the context of the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but I'd like to take the opportunity to kind of broaden our scope of this inquiry for a minute and ask you what you make of the federal government's response to the pandemic in general, in terms of addressing its economic impact on the citizens of the United States. Well, it's been hit and miss. The first CARES payments, even though they didn't get to everybody, really did help people. Uh, then there was a blip and another smaller one. And in between, there are horror stories of people who aren't paying the rent. They're moving out of their, their apartments. They're living with their parents. Uh, they're just worried about how to make ends meet. Many of them have good family support, which is helpful. But others, if you don't have anything, you're facing homelessness, you're facing all sorts of issues. And um, I think it was tough. A lot of politics got in the way of the second bill. 
And I think everyone's eager to do something now until we get to the really to the end of the tunnel. And um, I think that it's time to do something. I'm not sure about $1,400 a person uh, to middle and upper income people. I don't need it. Lots of people don't need it. But the bottom of the K-shaped recovery that some of us have already recovered and never lost. Uh, but those families need help. And there are a lot of ways to get it to them. And families with children need more help and more responsibilities. And the child allowance will help there. So in general, I think better days are ahead. Um, Biden also has reasonable ideas about immigration. He has reasonable ideas about the climate. He's got reasonable ideas about infrastructure projects and people who may lose their jobs, who's trying, people he's trying to deal with. So it's time to give them a chance. And I think there's a fairly strong sentiment about that. If this is his big idea and he gets this through, I'll be very happy. He decided not to argue about redoing the healthcare system yet again, and uh, which is really important to a lot of people, but he can make inroads uh, expanding the ACA there. I'm a little more worried about what's going on in our state, given that the leadership can't talk to one another and, um, and so forth, but they won't have much say about this one. This one, if it comes, it comes from the federal government, it goes to everybody. Um, states will have a very small role, I think, in how the child allowance or the refundable child credit pans out. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time. It's been great You're having welcome. the chance to talk to you. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.